right, let us begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your spirit upon us today, that you would open our ears and eyes so that we might see and hear your word and what you'd have us know today. Pray, Lord, that uh, you would uh, help us to focus today and to, to listen to you, and that it might build us up and edify us as we leave this place. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, I'm going to be diving into that Old Testament passage. So if you would like, I would encourage you to open up your Bibles or the app on your phone, whatever you guys have with you today. I also encourage you to bring your Bible to church. I'm a big fan of that, bringing your Bible to church. Um, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 42 this morning. And in that passage, God declares, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. So that is kind of the text we're going to be focusing on. That's at, towards the end of that passage. But we're going to be talking about new things. So who doesn't like new things? Right here I got a picture of a new car. Anybody like the new car smell? Anybody a fan of that? I love that smell. Love new cars. There's not much more appealing than, than that new car smell. My kids got a bunch of new toys for Christmas, and they can tell you all about how awesome their new toys are. Anybody get something new for Christmas that they were excited about? Yeah, new smoker, Craig, right? <laughs> yeah, we love new stuff. So here we are in a new year, and a new year marks new beginnings for many. In this time of year, many people endeavor to uh, start and to make their new year resolutions, and they often include new healthy behaviors people would like to adopt or a new cessation of bad habits. One thing resolutions tell us is that most of us know we need to change in some way. They also tell us that a lot of us are really bad at changing. The stats tell us that 80% of people fail to achieve their New Year's resolutions, and most of us lose our resolve by mid-February. So that's right, 80% of us fail to meet the resolutions we make, and most of us quit by mid-February. So what is it about us humans that make us so slow to change? Why is change so hard for us humans? Psychologists love talking about this and have all sorts of theories to explain why we humans are slow to change and offer great counsel on how to overcome this. It's, it's filled the contents of many books, this theme. But one thing becomes clear when we view reality through the lens of God's word. We know what the problem is. It's called sin. Sin keeps us where we are and away from where God wants us to be. But God, when he says he's going to bring about new things, you can take that to the bank. God is faithful to his word. So in this prophecy from the book of Isaiah, God makes a promise about bringing new things, and he says he will do so through his servant, his chosen servant. So in the Old Testament, God gives this title to a lot of people, uh, my servant. He gives it to Abraham, to Moses, to David, Isaiah, the prophets in general, and even some pagan kings like Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar. Yes, there's a D in that, Lucas and Anna, remember? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, these pagan kings, they are servants of the Lord God Almighty. 
The title is also given to God's people Israel in general, like in corporately, to indicate their reason for existence. Um, Israel is God's chosen servant to reveal his glory to the nations. But none of these individuals or Israel corporately quite fits the description of the servant in Isaiah 42 and the, also the other three servant songs found in Isaiah's prophecy. It becomes clear as you go through the text that Isaiah is talking about the good news of Jesus. And it is an astonishing prophecy. If you really dive into this text, it's just amazing with what clarity that Isaiah predicts Christ and the events around his life. So we're going to go through this text verse by verse from Isaiah and see what new things God is cooking up for us today. So Isaiah starts, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. And so this first part, that first sentence, is our first tip-off that says that the servant mentioned here is a little different than most other servants. God does not throw this phrase around a lot, in whom my soul delights. So can anyone tell me out there, that I want some participation now, some interaction, can anyone tell me where else this kind of language is used in the Bible? In whom my soul delights. I'll give you a hint. We already heard it today. Doug? At the baptism, the heavens are opened up. The Spirit descends on Jesus as a dove. And the Father says, Behold, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Or another way to say that, in whom I take delight. Where else do you hear words like that? Transfiguration of Jesus. Yep. You hear the voice of the Father booming from the heavens again. Behold, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased, or in whom I take delight. God doesn't use this phrase for Abraham, even though Abraham was God's chosen servant, and Abraham responded in faith. God did not use this for Moses, one of the greatest leaders of the Old Testament. He didn't use it for any other one of his servants because all the others were in need of forgiveness. They couldn't save themselves, much less do anything about their partners in crime throughout the world, their fellow fallen humans. There is only one in whom God's soul finds full delight, in whom God finds no fault or deceit or sin. The passage continues, I have put my spirit upon him. Again, what does this remind us of? I've put my spirit upon him. Baptism, right? The Spirit comes in the form of a dove and comes upon Jesus. This is foretelling that time when Jesus was coming up out of the waters at his baptism. The heaven opens up. The Spirit comes upon him as a dove. The gift of the Spirit is confirmation that God gives his servant the authority and the power to carry out his mission. If you notice, the baptism of Jesus happens right at the beginning of the gospel um, of Matthew. Right there in the beginning before he starts his public ministry. This is the power that Jesus had need to fulfill his mission, was the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we read here, last sentence of this verse, he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, again, I'm going to ask for some participation here. What do we think of when we think of justice? How is justice enforced in our day and age? How does one receive justice Anybody help me out? Where is justice served? 
Keenan, help me out. In the courts, that's right. By the governing authorities, that's where one receives justice. You see, the state makes laws in order to protect and serve the people, and it meets out punishment to those who transgress the law and hurt their neighbor. The governing authorities do not bear the sword for nothing, as St. Paul writes in, in uh, Romans chapter 13. The government brings forth justice through force, enforcing laws. And this is how it has been for millennia. And at the time of Isaiah, around 700 B.C., if a king fancied himself the true and rightful ruler of some lands or some peoples that were not yet in his possession, he forced his will on those people through military conquest, treading down kings and rulers and anyone who would get in his way, thus bringing about what he saw as justice. That's how the world has worked for many years. Somebody who fancies himself a king, a ruler of any place, enforces justice as they see fit. Now, is this the same kind of justice that we're reading about here in Isaiah? The servant, God's servant, will bring forth justice to the nations. Is it the same kind of justice that we think about usually? So what does Isaiah mean? By this, by God's servant bringing justice to the earth. How did God's chosen servant, Jesus, bring justice to the nations? Well, it would appear that Jesus brought justice to the earth in what appeared to be a gross miscarriage of justice. Since the guilty would go free and the innocent would be punished. Jesus came to usher in God's justice or his righteousness Mankind had transgressed God's law and deserved punishment, that is, physical and eternal death. That's the punishment for sin. And Jesus took that punishment on himself, though he did not deserve it. He did this to make us right with God. And this gives us a little glimpse into the other servant songs in Isaiah that describe more of a suffering servant, where Isaiah describes a servant as stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God, and as a, as a sheep led to the slaughter. On to verse 2 here. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. See, this servant king, he wouldn't draw attention to himself. He wouldn't force his will on anyone through violence or shouting. You know, I wish uh, we had some more commentary on Jesus' preaching style. I would love to, you know, like have a soundtrack of how Jesus sounded when he preached. In the Greek text, we don't have any exclamation points um, in the original Greek we insert some here and there that seem appropriate when we translate it into English, like when he calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs and hypocrites. We throw some exclamation points in there. Or when it, the text actually says, and he cried out in a loud voice, we'll, we'll add exclamation points at the end of those texts. But we don't know for sure exactly the tone of voice with Jesus um, preached the word. But perhaps Jesus rarely raised his voice like Isaiah prophesies here. Perhaps he didn't need to. See, when you speak with power and when you speak with authority and the truth, you need not shout. I imagine Jesus was the calmest person in the room, the, the non-anxious presence wherever he went. Even when the chief priests and the Pharisees were hur hurling all sorts of false accusations at him, what did he do? He just sat in silence. He didn't open his mouth, didn't argue, didn't shout back. 
On to verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So reeds back in uh, these days were used for pens, among other things. They're writing utensils. Wicks were made from broken flax fibers that couldn't be woven properly. And those, these things, although these things weren't worth much, the servant would handle them with care, Isaiah says. And I believe that these words are some of the most comforting words in Scripture. Life is tough. We are assailed by all sorts of cares and worries. Life can be going along just fine, and then an illness or death in the family can bring us to despair, bring us to our needs. At some points, we feel our faith is strong, but then some trial or problem breaks us down and overwhelms us and seems too much to handle. We can feel like that delicate reed or that faintly burning wick, like we're weak, we're small, insignificant, like all our strength is gone. But Jesus, our servant king, handles us with the utmost care and attention. He holds our lives in his capable and strong hands and promises not to let us be snuffed out. And I love these words from St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will always provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And also St. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God won't snuff you out. He will give you the strength to endure whatever it is that you face. In verse 4, Isaiah continues, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. So the last servant song in Isaiah chapters 52 to 53 makes it clear how this servant will bring about the justice. And here there's only a hint of that suffering. Though Jesus would become weak and exhausted by the weight of the mission that he was given, he doesn't give up the struggle. There's a common thread among all successful people I've heard tell, whether they're rich or famous or powerful or, or accomplished or a really good athlete one thing is common among these people. They don't give up. They don't quit. Or if they, they did once, they learned from it and, and vowed never to do that again. We often think that these kind of people get what they're, what they're going after by their own genius, their own talent, or some innate ability or gift. But most of the time, it was because they didn't quit. They had grit and determination, these people. Well, Jesus, he definitely had grit. He had determination. He didn't give up on his mission to save lost souls. And Jesus did not give up on you. And we as Christians can go about the things God has called us to do with the same kind of grit and determination, not because of our own power, our own strength, our own genius or will or mental fortitude, but because we know that we have the love of God in Christ Jesus. We have salvation. We have forgiveness of sins. And we know that God will give us the strength to endure whatever life throws at us. 
Next here in verses 5 to 7, Isaiah gives this foundation for the servant's calling. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out. This is the God who's calling his servant, who's establishing things. This is the one who created everything, the heavens and the earth, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. He says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I'll take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Now just imagine Jesus at his baptism here before he starts his mission work, before he starts bringing the kingdom, really, at his baptism. Imagine the Father, like Jesus has these words from Isaiah in his head. I will take you, I will keep you, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison who sit in darkness. That's the confidence the Father gives to the Son. That's the same confidence that the Son gives to us now by virtue of our baptism. So here God gives his servant a firm identity and purpose. He says, I am the Lord, you are my servant, you will bring about my justice in my righteousness. And Jesus knows this when he starts his public ministry. If you remember in Luke chapter 4, Jesus reads, he unrolls the prophet, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, uh, chapter 61, and he says these words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And do you remember when he scrolled, rolled that scroll back up, what he said? This is me. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then Jesus um, gets word from, from John the Baptist. If you remember Matthew chapter 11, uh, John the Baptist is like, hey guys, go ask this Jesus, if he's the real deal, if he's the Messiah, can you go ask him or if, or if there's somebody else coming? And Jesus sends word back to John the Baptist, and he says this. He doesn't say, I am the Messiah, but he says this. I, wait, no, nope, this word's. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You know by the works, by the actions, by the deeds of Jesus who he is. That he is the Messiah, the one to come to save people. So Isaiah concludes this servant song in verses 8 to 9. I am the Lord, that is my name, and don't wear it out, right? Well, unless you're continually praising me, thanking me, worshiping me, calling upon my name in times of trouble, you can't wear my name out doing that. But here... He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them, these new things. So finally, here we get to the new things. The new things that God declares. And this new thing is that covenant of which he spoke in verse 6. The new covenant is made by the blood of Jesus, the blood of the cross. And those of us who have been baptized into Jesus were baptized into that cross where our old sinful self was killed. 
And God brought about a new thing in us, a new life. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, St. Paul so, says, so too we rise from the dead to new life. And every time we gather around this meal, around the Lord's Supper, the covenant is confirmed and God's forgiveness is given again and again. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. What mystery is this? The new covenant. God confirms it every time we partake of the Lord's Supper. We receive the forgiveness. We are reminded of this new covenant in Christ's body and blood. We have the assurance of God's covenant and his word fulfilled every time we come to this altar. And I'm not sure if we make this clear enough, but when we partake of the body and blood of Christ, we are transferred for a moment to the kingdom of heaven. We are in the kingdom of heaven. And in the kingdom of heaven are all those who have fallen asleep in Christ before us. All the saints, all the martyrs, the 12 elders of the tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles of the New Testament church, all the multitudes of angels and the saints singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power. Glory be to God and the Lamb who sits on the throne forever. When you come to the altar, you are transferred to that kingdom where Christ reigns on the throne, where the Lamb of God has come in his fullness already. For a moment, we get to taste that, the marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom when we all participate in the Lord's Supper. Jesus was baptized at the Jordan River, and there he took on the sin of the whole world. And he bore that sin all the way to the cross and paid the price for it. For you and for me. And now you, through your baptism, have gone from death to life. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Your sin has been taken away. Your guilt has been taken away. You're now new. You have a new life, transformed by God. And now God calls you to live in holiness and righteousness. And your mission now is to lead others to the glorious new things that God has in store for the world. May he grant you his strength and his power and his presence as you go about and confirm that mission. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all human understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus until he comes again in fullness. Amen.